Hi, this is Lily DeHoyas Anderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. Thanks for joining me today as we are talking about the end of 1 Nephi, chapters 16 to 22. Let me make a quick comment first. Again, I want to thank Doug Larson, who has been really unbelievable. And if these come out a little late, that is on me, not on Doug. He has been amazing about the quick turnaround, as I said, but I have been doing these recordings very late for the days that I'm hoping to publish, and he still gets on them very quickly. So I'm so grateful, and I appreciate your patience. There's good news coming for Doug, (laughs) which is that next week I am a guest on Follow Him. And I want to thank the Follow Him crew because we were going to record on January 4th, but for obvious reasons, we didn't record that early in the year. And David Perry, who is the director of that podcast, stretched in order to allow us to record as late as this past Tuesday, which was the 23rd of January. And he is under pressure now to get it all ready for release. And I appreciate his willingness to be flexible and allow that visit to still happen. But the good news for Doug is that that gives me one week that I won't have to record for Choosing Glory. And I will just ask all of you, if you're interested, to go and listen to that episode, which will be on Second Nephi chapters 1 and 2, Lehi's final testimony and admonitions to his family. And to find that on Follow Him, it will be on YouTube and on podcasts, audio podcasts. So join me there next week, and that will give me a chance to get a little bit ahead again, which I have not done. Again, forgive me, I'm going to get personal here for a moment. It has been a busy, busy time. And I've been telling my children and some dear friends that I seem to start the day with a list that is maybe two pages long of things that I'm hoping to accomplish. And I'm prayerful about realizing I'm not going to get them all done, but that I hope I'm guided to the right ones and that I can be effective. But by the end of the day, that list goes from two pages to four pages because everything seems to have tentacles. So as soon as I, you know, try to get this one done, I find out that there are two or three or sometimes four more tasks involved in getting something accomplished that I had hoped would be simpler. So it's been a very busy time. I feel like I'm running as fast as I can and going backwards. But there are some things that are getting done, and I'm grateful for that. And I do really work on trying to find the will of the Lord in pacing, which I'm not saying I'm doing perfectly, but I am trying to do that. I really want to use the admonition that has been given to each of us to ask and to seek and to knock. And I am trying to find the will of the Lord in what I do and kind of how I do it and the pace. Certainly feel frustrated sometimes. Let me not be coy about that. And I complain to some of my family and (laughs) dear friends I apologize for it because I don't mean to be negative, but I do believe in venting a little bit. You've heard me talk about catharsis before, about the need to detox when life is hard. I am trying to work in time myself, and I have, but I'm trying to work in some more time writing about the loss of Chris and about 
all the stresses that have resulted from that, because I believe that God wants me to process those things in faith, but to to release those hard things so that I can then be filled with reason and clarity and light. I also want to say how much I miss him when it comes to this podcast. Forgive me. I talked about everything with him, and it helped to clarify my thoughts and to kind of focus some of my direction, and I valued that so much, and I miss it now, but I have found myself praying that I can still have the benefit and the blessing of Chris's input I do think often about that wonderful and maybe spiritually suggestive statement by Brigham Young that we live beneath our privilege. I don't want to live beneath my privilege. I want to embrace and receive the blessings that God has in store for me and the help that is available on both sides of the veil. And the help on this side of the veil has been plentiful and generous, and I'm grateful. I can't even accept it all because I'm not organized enough. (laughs) I think when the house is done, (laughs) I don't want to say if the house is done, but anyway, when the house is done, and that will still be a while, but when there are some things that are happening, so I'm grateful for that, but when it's done, then I will probably be able to receive more help (laughs) in getting things organized and so on. And my kids are standing ready too. that so much generosity has been extended to me in so many ways. And I, I want to take this opportunity in this forum to express my gratitude. I'm deeply grateful for the kindness and the love that has been shown to me in all kinds of ways. And I want to continue to reach for the help that is available from God and through the priesthood of my husband that is available to me and the blessings that can come to me because of that. And I do feel it. I do when I pause to ask and to ask that I can receive those blessings and the help that I need. I do feel it come. Well, I'm learning also how to hopefully come closer to receiving all the blessings that God has waiting for us. Maybe you remember that story, and forgive me, I'm not going to look it up. In fact, I think I remember looking it up once and not finding it, but I know I remember hearing this many years ago about the apostles, many of the apostles in the early Latter-day Saint time that were sent to Europe to proselyte and to teach the gospel and to seek to bring many people into Christ and into the church. And if somebody knows where this is, I would love to have a reference on this. But I remember that the story goes something like this, that they were experiencing many hardships, all kinds of difficulties in their journeys, and they were suffering. And the person who was maybe seeing this in vision or telling this story again, I apologize that my details are so mushy, but that there were angels all above them and around them waiting to help 
waiting to bless them in their difficulties, but they didn't look up. I don't want to make that mistake, brothers and sisters. I don't want to. I'm determined not to make that mistake. I am determined to look up, to get on my knees and bow my head and pray for the blessings that God has prepared for me, that he desires to give me, that are contingent on my asking, and yes, my living worthy and being diligent in my covenant so that I can be strengthened in all the ways that are possible. I want I want God to consecrate this for my gain. And the only tragedy would be if I waste this opportunity to grow and to become. Now, let's get back to these last chapters of 1 Nephi. And brothers and sisters, there is so much here, and I kind of fell into the trap of trying to cover a lot of it in a little more specific detail. I still tend to wake up in the middle of the night, and I'm up for a little while, and then I'm able to go back to sleep. But last night was up, and I decided to come and go through these chapters again and make notes. And I made like five pages of notes of beautiful little thoughts that are expressed here by Nephi and beautiful words and ideas that are important. But then this morning when I was trying to focus and clarify a message, I realized, and and I did, and this is one of those times I was really trying to reach beyond the veil for Chris's help, for the Lord's help in having more direction and clarity. And this is what came, and I hope it's something that's useful because the other would have taken much too long to discuss and would have seemed pretty scattered. So here's what I hope will be a useful message. First, I think that Nephi is a titan of faith. How many of us have our scriptural heroes, and certainly Nephi is one of them for many of us. He's just an amazing, an amazing example of how to respond to difficulty with faith. And we can see his trajectory of growth and becoming through this record as well. They're all sort of sketchy records, but there is enough detail here to just kind of blow me away at what kind of a man he chose to be and how he grew. And it makes sense to me that they wanted him to be their king, that his people loved him so much that after he died, and we'll read this in Second Nephi, of course, that they named for quite a long time, they named all the leaders of the people after him because they wanted to honor him in that way. And he really is an amazing example to us, and I am inspired by him. In these chapters, there are huge stories that each could take a lot of discussion. And I'm going to try to do more of an overarching discussion about this rather than get into too much of the detail, because we know these stories well. Again, if we've read any part of the Book of Mormon, it's usually this first Nephi, right? And we hear these stories in primary and all through our lives, they're repeated. So we tend to know them well. We know about the Liahona, this ball of curious workmanship that had spindles that became a compass. And of course, it worked according to faith. There are lots of lessons about that. The story of Nephi's broken bow, the last steel bow that the group has 
to go out and get food for their families, and it breaks. And they are without food as they're trying to figure out what to do, and even Lehi starts to murmur. Now, I mean, it's easy to to dismiss that, but brothers and sisters, how often have we gone without food for extended periods of time? And for you men, how would you feel if you couldn't feed your wives or your children and you saw them crying as they went to sleep or crying during the day for hunger and you didn't know what to do about it or didn't have the capacity to fix that problem right away? And you yourselves were so hungry that you start to feel weak and deprived of what nourishment is required to keep us going. That really hit me this time. And this was a time of serious suffering. And then, of course, they get to the land bountiful. And they're so grateful. They're so grateful. He says it twice within like one long verse or two that there was much fruit. And that's why they called it bountiful. Finally, they can pick things off trees and eat and not have to go and hunt. Then, of course, he's told to build a ship. And his brethren want to kill him again. So the spirit has to shock the brothers. I mean, first, it would have killed them to touch him. And they would have withered, as it says, withered like a reed. But the spirit does, later on, give him the opportunity to touch his brethren so that they're shocked enough to know that they better remember not to be violent against him. But that seems to wear off when they get on the boat, right? Because they start to make merry and they tie him to a mast for four days like, I can't even imagine what that was like for him. But he's not able to take care of any of his needs or functions. He is in pain as these bonds are tight around him that restrain him. His wife is pleading for mercy. His parents are almost brought down to the grave. His own children are begging Laman and Lemuel to release their father. And no, for four days... They were able to touch him without being shocked this time, weren't they? So that was a temporary power that came so that they could get the ship built. But now they're on the ship. Of course, they are threatened with destruction. And after the storm beats them backwards for a long time, and they finally start to see that they could perish, Laman and Lemuel untie him. And what does he do? He gives thanks. Immediately, he praises God. Boy, I want to be like Nephi. A couple of other things that I skipped. I'm sorry, this is one that I have to admit I'm going to get details on. I was going through a kind of long trial one time, and it lasted for several years. And I remember when I was reading First Nephi again, during that time, on one occasion, reading these chapters, I saw that they were eight years in the wilderness, and I had to count for a minute. I think, okay, it's already been like nine or ten years. And I was like, oh dear, hope I'm not going for 40 years on this one, because eight is a pretty significant number in the scriptures, and sometimes trials last, or time in the wilderness can last 40 years, so I was hopeful it would not have to land on 40 since we had already exceeded eight, but it didn't. It didn't last 40 years. I think it was 12. (laughs) Who's counting? And actually, that's sort of a mushy number because I didn't mark it on the calendar, and it didn't end quickly, but I am grateful that it ended And I did learn in that time. I did become a better version of myself. Certainly have more to do, but I did learn things that I am very, very grateful for. And I learned that I had a capacity to do things 
that I didn't know and I had not had previously in terms of patience and charity and meekness. So grateful for the opportunity to stretch in those areas. So I want to see these chapters and all of 1 Nephi, and of course many other scriptures as well, as a study in suffering. There was one trial after another, and they were serious trials. And then I want to contrast Nephi's response versus Laman and Lemuel's response. But let's start in reverse order. Let's look at Laman and Lemuel's response. Well, it's not hard to find, and it's repeated so constantly through these stories. The murmuring, the blaming, and let's just mention the distortion of truth. I think this is a really important point. And this has to do with our human tendency, brothers and sisters, to justify ourselves, to rationalize our bad behavior. And I've talked about this many times before. I talk about it on the Follow Him podcast as well, so I'm not going to get into it too much because it'll be next week on that episode. But I do want to talk about this distortion of truth that leads them to unrighteous judgment, where they condemn and blame Nephi for things Nephi is not doing. But that satisfies their carnal and sensual natural man, so that they can justify their anger and murderous rage toward him. And they even distort truth all over the place. Like, well, you know, with Lehi right away, their own father, oh, he's just a visionary man. And they don't mean that in a complimentary sense. They mean he's just in fantasy and he's making everything up and he's not a good person. He's just delusional. And so they're making a judgment about their father who is a prophet. And this is what they land on and they want to land on it. And they stay there again and again. Then, of course, they extend that to Nephi. He's crazy, too. Notice, one of the things that I thought was pretty interesting is that they specifically say, you know, he thinks God talks to him. But let's look this up because it's kind of an interesting irony. This is 1 Nephi 16, verse 37. And Laman said unto Lemuel and also to the sons of Ishmael, Behold, let us slay our father and also our brother Nephi who has taken upon him to be our ruler and our teacher, who are his elder brethren. Verse 38, now he says that the Lord hath talked with him. And then in verse 39, so we're just jumping one verse, and it came to pass that the Lord was with us, yea, even the voice of the Lord came and did speak many words unto them and did chasten them exceedingly. Now, think of the delusional nature of Laman and Lemuel. They're saying, oh yeah, Nephi and Leah, they think God talks to them. And then who knows how long that was, but obviously not too long because it was stopping them from killing Lehi and Nephi again, that God talked to them. They heard the voice of the Lord. And it was backing up what Nephi and Lehi say. But this is a constant complaint with them. Well, he thinks he's getting messages. And then they get a message that Lehi and Nephi are being inspired, that backs up the prophets completely. But yeah, is that delusional or what? Yeah, it completely is. This is distortion, where we will not hear the truth, even when it is said plainly to us, but we dismiss it or deny it. And denial is a huge issue. Again, I talk about that a little bit more next week, but we are into this place where we will not make righteous judgments. Now, we've talked about critical thinking and how important that is, but it all starts with truth. Remember section 93, things as they really are. 
things as they really are. That's what I want. I want to understand things as they really are because the truth is what sets us free. And it's the foundation of all growth and becoming and goodness and obedience. We cannot be obedient if we don't understand the truth. And we cannot become more like Jesus Christ if we don't know and embrace and love the truth and seek the truth. When I was writing my mother's obituary, you know, I started out with that. She was a seeker of truth. Such a great example to me and to others. How essential is it for us to understand things as they really are and to constantly be seeking to understand better? God tells us that if we seek the mysteries, they will be revealed unto us. And that's what we need to build Zion. We need truth. We see Nephi receiving truth and acting on it. So, okay, I do want to talk a little bit about this unrighteous judgment because we see that again and again, Laman and Lemuel, again, this is just in the next page, chapter 17 of 1 Nephi. I mean, it's pretty amazing, saying it would have been better for all of us than for our wives and children if they had died before they came out of Jerusalem, rather than suffer these afflictions. That's verse 20, the end of verse 20, verse 22. We know that the people who were in the land of Jerusalem were a righteous people, for they kept the statutes and judgments of the Lord and all his commandments according to the law of Moses. Wherefore, we know that they are a righteous people, and our Father hath judged them and hath led us away, because we would hearken to his words, etc. Anyway, look at the distortion again. Look at this huge reversal of reality. Now, let's just jump for a moment to Moroni 7, which is a terrific chapter on judgment. And this is Moroni, who is sharing with us the words of his father, Mormon. And we get a lot of wonderful lessons from Mormon through his son in the book of Moroni. Anyway, at verse 15, it is given unto you to judge that ye may know good from evil. That's the reason for judgment, to know things as they really are. Know what is good and what is evil. As the daylight is from the dark night, we can know with a perfect knowledge. Verse 16, the spirit of Christ is given that he may know good from evil. Wherefore, I show unto you the way to judge. And then here's the key. Everything that invites to do good and persuade to believe in Christ is sent forth by the power and gift of Christ. And you may know with a perfect knowledge it is of God. So if it brings us to Christ, if it helps us become more like him, it is of God. But verse 17, whatsoever thing persuadeth men to do evil and believe not in Christ and deny him and serve not God, ye may know with a perfect knowledge it is of the devil. That is the way to judge. So when Joseph Smith was saying in his retranslation of the Bible, Matthew 7, judge not that ye be not judged. And what he really then corrected it to say was judge not unrighteous judgment. This is what he was talking about. He wasn't saying, don't make any judgments, which is, again, one of Satan's best tools. Don't judge anything. Don't try to distinguish between good and evil. And what happens to a society? Well, Isaiah described it. Good becomes called evil, and evil starts to be called good. And this is exactly where Laman and Lemuel are. They are condemning their brother and their father, both prophets of the Lord. And it doesn't matter if they're distorting all the facts or not. Now, I've talked about memory before. Again, memory conforms to our current conclusions. And unless we are concluding truth and things as they really are, we distort all kinds of things. Oh, yeah, remember those good guys in Jerusalem? They were great. They were righteous people. Now, brothers and sisters, are we seeing that in our day? Are we seeing people who are looking at the craziness that is going on in our society, where good is called evil and evil good, where black is called white and white is called black, men are called women, women are called men? 
And we are saying that three-year-olds know, if they're a man or a woman, a three-year-old who believes in Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny and the Tooth Fairy and who doesn't know very much at all and can be rich in fantasy. And yet now we're going to do all kinds of things to distort the plan of God because we think we know things as they really are. Well, brothers and sisters, how about if we go back to seeing what leads us to Christ and what leads us away? How about if we apply this terrific standard of judgment and we don't fall in the trap of Laman and Lemuel? This is not about condemning people. I've talked about this so much in the past. I referenced President Oaks' wonderful speech when he was in the Quorum of the Twelve at BYU called Judge Not in Judging. Review it again if it's been a while and teach your children to judge and review for each of us ourselves how to judge right from wrong, good from evil, truth from error. This is such a great gift that God gives us, and too often we leave it unopened. We don't utilize this wonderful gift. Okay, do not judge wrongfully, Mormon says, and Moroni warns us in verse 18 of Moroni 7. Going on, these brothers become past feeling, mentioned in verse 45 of chapter 17. And yes, they become murderous. Now, I know sometimes people want to be a little sympathetic to Laman and Lemuel. And again, they don't want to condemn. Well, it's not ours to condemn, but they almost don't want to judge. And they say like, well, how would you feel if your younger brother was doing this? I'm not sure. I wouldn't have been angry myself. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Are there actions indicative of someone going to Christ or away. Clearly, I mean, when they are so quick to become murderous and they make several attempts to take the life of their brother Nephi, that's evil. This is not just sibling rivalry. Like, yeah, maybe there was a component of that, but they take it to this level. This is, this is evil. And again, I find it fascinating and important to understand that God takes that Lamanites or takes the founders of the Lamanite nations to the new world. They didn't want to come, but he brings them because the Nephites will need, in God's charity and in his love, the Nephites will need a scourge. They'll need a reminder when they get off the path, when they start to turn away from God and turn away from their covenants, they will need something to bring them back if they choose to repent So the Lamanites started with such hatred, fill that role in a very effective way. Now, I do want to say, in our current news, I don't know how much you have looked into this, and I'm not trying to spend a lot of time on it, but I do want to say that there is information that some of the Palestinians have developed materials, cartoons even, that are shown to their children growing up that talk about the hatred of the Jews and even illustrate that it's okay to hurt or even kill a Jew. And that is an echo, right? I mean, isn't this the same thing? Because the Lamanites are taught an everlasting hatred of the Nephites from their cradles. And look what emerges. Like, where is our responsibility to to teach our children the opposite? I'm going to talk about that a little bit later in today's podcast. What's Nephi's response? Let's go to the good stuff here. Well, again, after he's released from his bonds that tie him to the mast, and he's all swollen because of this horrible abuse, verse 16 of chapter 18, Nevertheless, I did look unto my God and did praise him all the day long. 
and I did not murmur against the Lord because of mine afflictions. Trying to be like Nephi. I do detox. I will admit, <laughs> I do detox. But I am not murmuring against the Lord, and I am keeping that gratitude journal. I am not perfect about it, but I am doing it regularly to list the great blessings that the Lord has given me. I can be more like this wonderful prophet example. I can use this time of challenge to work toward strengthening and one day perfecting my faith. And, of course, he supports his prophet father. We love that little part of the story of the broken bow where even though Lehi, who is probably really hungry and sees his young sons, Jacob and Joseph and his grandchildren and his daughters-in-laws and daughters, anyway, all of them are suffering. But Nephi very appropriately goes to his father, who is the leader of the group, and says, where shall I go to hunt? And Lehi goes to the Lehona, and it's an interesting statement there, as what he sees there fills him with fear. So you wonder if there was chastening in there, or if it was just prophecy about what would happen to Laman and Lemuel. It doesn't really tell us. But there was something there that really got his attention in a pretty strong emotional way. But then he gets the answer and he tells Nephi where to go and hunt. And then, of course, we have this I will go and do theme throughout Nephi's writings. I will go and do. And we have that great example again when he is told to go up in the high mountain and he does and he prays and the Lord tells him he's going to build a ship. As has been pointed out by many over the years, he doesn't say like, what, build a ship? How could I do that? He says, where do I go to find or to make tools? That's the I will go and do spirit. And I want to have that. I want to encourage all of us to to have that kind of faith and build that kind of faith. If this is what the Lord wants, then okay, he's going to help me. Where do I go next for the next step? Because I am willing. I'm all in. And then at kind of the pinnacle, of course, of Nephi's response is his testimony of Jesus Christ, which he does again and again and again to his brothers. And of course, to his own family as well. He testifies, he wants to persuade them, as he says in Second Nephi, that we'll read soon that beautiful verse. But right now, I'm just going to look at chapter 19, where he says some lovely things about Jesus Christ. And this is a beautiful testimony of what Christ does for us. He's talking about building the plates of ore, actually, but then he says that others set Christ at naught and trample him under their feet. Yea, even the very God of Israel, this is verse 7 of chapter 19, even the very God of Israel do men trample under their feet. I say trample under their feet, but I would speak in other words. They set him at naught and hearken not to the voice of his counsels. Verse 8, he cometh, according to the words of the angel, in 600 years from the time my father left Jerusalem. Look at the mysteries that can be unveiled to us when we believe and obey. Verse 9, the world, because of their iniquity, shall judge him to be a thing of naught. Wherefore they scourge him, and he suffereth it. And they smite him, and he suffereth it. Yea, they spit upon him, and he suffereth it, because of his loving kindness and his long suffering towards the children of men. How can I complain about my pain when my Savior Jesus Christ did all for me? And he talks about how they kill him as prophesied by 
Zenic prophets that we don't have writings of, even Nahum and so on, and they lay him in sepulcher. But then in verse 12, the prophet Zenus says, the rocks of the earth must rend. And because of the groanings of the earth, many of the kings of the isles of the sea shall be wrought upon by the Spirit of God to exclaim, the God of nature suffers. The earth groaned when Christ suffered and died. And then he talks about those who are in Jerusalem. And these are the people that Laman and Lemuel judge completely wrongly and try to exonerate when they are so ripened in iniquity eventually that they kill their own God. And then look at this prophetic statement in verse 13 of chapter 19. They shall be scourged by all people because they crucify the God of Israel. And verse 14, they turn their hearts aside and because of this, they shall wander in the flesh and perish and become a hiss and a byword and be hated among all nations. Have we not seen the fulfillment of this now again in our day? And in verse 15, Nevertheless, when that day cometh, saith the prophet, that they no more turn aside their hearts against the Holy One of Israel. So that still has to happen. We do have some groups called like Jews for Jesus. So we use the term Messianic Jews who recognize that Christ is the Messiah. So some are starting, but there will need to be more. But then when that happens, then will God remember the covenants which he hath made to their fathers. And all the earth, verse 17, shall see the salvation of the Lord. Anyway, wonderful things that we are seeing start to happen in our day. Well, continue to happen, not even start. But there's much more to come, brothers and sisters. We need to be ready. We can do this. We can choose the path of Nephi. We can choose glory. That is a celestial path. We can become Zion. And then this beautiful statement of 1923, that I might fully persuade them to believe in the Lord their Redeemer. I did read unto them that which was written by the prophet Isaiah. And he likened scriptures unto us, that it could be for profit and learning. So that's what I hope we are doing this year as we study the Book of Mormon together. He testifies of Christ and tries to persuade. Now, I'm just going to mention quickly chapter 20, verse 10. I have refined thee. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. Don't we see that in Nephi's life? Why do we think that if we desire the gifts and blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and of Lehi, and Nephi, and Moroni, and Mormon, and all the wonderful examples we have in scripture, why do we think our path won't include a furnace of affliction? And yet it is to consecrate and bring us to a more refined state. And again, the challenge is not to suffer. It is to waste our suffering. Instead, we want to yield to the process of growth and stretching and learning and perfecting our faith. Skipping around again, I love this, verse 17 of 1 Nephi 20. Thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I have sent him the Lord thy God who teacheth thee to profit. That is the way, is through the Holy One of Israel. He teaches us to receive all that the Father hath eventually. If we continue on that path, end of that chapter, just the reminder, there's no peace unto the wicked. Chapter 21, compared to Isaiah 49, and of course I have to mention this because these are really tender verses to me. 
verses 14 and 15. But behold, Zion hath said, The Lord hath forsaken me, and my Lord hath forgotten me, but he will show that he hath not. And I shared with you last week that that is something I am determined on. I will feel the love of the Lord because I choose to do it. I will not get caught in that trap and say that he hath forsaken me. I know that that's a lie. God does not forsake his people. He does try them. He chooses them in the furnace of affliction, but he does not forsake. And this beautiful, beautiful, one of my favorite Isaiah verses, and oh, that's a silly thing to say. I have so many. Verse 15, for can a woman forget her sucking child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget. Yet will I not forget thee, O house of Israel. We have even seen the unnatural affection. Like Laman and Lemuel, they became past feeling. Some of these mothers who shout their abortions. I know there are desperate women out there. But these are not the ones, and that still does not justify what we are allowing in our society. We know there are some exceptions that the church has always stated in the cases of rape or incest or where the life of the mother is on the line. But this business now of unto the moment of birth, and then they get online or social media or whatever and shout what they have done. This is a woman forgetting the child of her womb. And having no natural compassion, I saw this really interesting video. The social worker there who's written a book, I'm going to have to look it up and put it in the notes, but she was talking about that oxytocin that comes into a mother's body when she's pregnant and then at the moment of birth really gives her kind of a dopamine hit. This pleasure, compassion hormone kind of that bonds her to her child and how Sadly, it is happening less and less. It should be growing and growing when a woman holds her baby, especially skin to skin, or nurses that child. Those feelings are natural and God-given, and yet can we get past feeling? Yes, we're in a world where there are so many injuries, and frankly, her answer to having women who don't feel that bond, she says it's all attachment injury, and I'm not going to argue with that. I think she's onto something, that there are attachment injuries that probably happened in that woman's attachment in her early life or other injuries that happen that break those natural bonds. So can a woman forget her child? Yes. We are living in a day where this is everywhere and it's horrible. Yet will I not forget thee, O house of Israel. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Wow, beautiful, beautiful words. I just have to mention, of course, that a marvelous work and a wonder is going to come forth in the Gentiles that is prophesied in chapter 22 that will be both of great worth to the Gentiles and to the house of Israel. Prophecies again that every nation were against thee, verse 14 of 22, O house of Israel, and will turn against them again. We are on the cusp here of seeing the final fulfillment of these things. It, it is coming, brothers and sisters. Twice. Here, close to the end of chapter 22, the end of verse 17 almost, wherefore the righteous need not fear. And in verse 22, it begins with the righteous need not fear. That's important. There's a lot of stuff that can be confusing. We talk about some of it here, but we need not fear. We need to go and do. 
We need to follow the commandments. And this is the final part of 1 Nephi. That Nephi writes again here, his such a strong example throughout his life, verse 30. I would that you would consider that the things which have been written upon the plates of brass are true, and they testify that a man must be obedient to the commandments of God. Verse 31, wherefore, ye need not suppose that I and my father are the only ones that have testified. Wherefore, if ye shall be obedient to the commandments and endure to the end, ye shall be saved at the last day. This is sort of a preliminary invitation to understand the doctrine of Christ, which he will explain very fully toward the end of 2 Nephi, which is about to begin. So let's just take a minute and talk about, again, this study of suffering and how we respond. What should happen to our hearts? We see the hard-heartedness of Laman and Lemuel and the easy-to-be-entreated Nephi who will go and do. He will follow the commands of God with faith, even in the dark. He doesn't say, how on earth am I going to build a ship? He says, okay, what do I do? I am trying not to ask, how am I going to do this without Chris? I am trying to ask, what would you have me do? What do you want me to learn so that I can be strengthened and receive the help from both sides of the veil to do what is necessary, to do what is God's invitation to me, to fulfill his roles for me, to fulfill the opportunities that have been foreordained for me. We can each do that because the Lord does provide a way. He always provides a way if we are willing to obey. Just want to quote a few things from Elder Marvin J. Ashton's speech in October of 1988, The Measure of Our Hearts. Some nice statements here by Elder Ashton. When the Lord measures an individual, he measures the heart as an indicator of the person's capacity and potential to bless others. Why the heart? Because the heart is a synonym for one's entire makeup. Later, the measure of our hearts is the measure of our total performance. As used by the Lord, the heart of a person describes his effort to better self or others or the conditions he confronts. A question I suggest to you is this. How do you measure up? Now, wouldn't that be a great question for us to ask? How do I measure up? Where is my heart? Do I have a soft heart, a heart that is easy to be entreated towards those around me, my family members, my loved ones, my spouse, my children, my neighbors? Do I have a soft heart? Do I have a soft enough heart that I go and minister to those that I've been asked to minister to and maybe even a few others that the Spirit might direct? Last Sunday, I was in my son Harper's ward. He spoke in sacrament meeting and actually taught Sunday school too. He's in the Sunday school presidency and they needed a last minute substitute or one without much notice. And he was happy to teach that too. So it was fun to hear him. And while I was there, two different families that he ministers to, one was a couple probably near my age, maybe a little younger, who came and said, you know, we've been in this church for 43 years and your son is the first one who has ever done regular ministering visits to us. And we really appreciate it. And another younger couple with a child said the same thing when I met them. They said, hey, this is the first time we've ever had a ministering brother who actually comes. Now, my husband, Chris, 
set a great example to the kids with ministering visits, home teaching back then, of course. And I've tried to do the same, but brothers and sisters, like, where is our heart? Where is our heart? And there's flexibility, and we know that situations vary. There might be long distances, and there are various ways that we can make contact. It doesn't always have to be a monthly visit. Sometimes that's not that hard to do, but it is that contact, that caring. And honestly, it's so good to be in their homes whenever we're able to be as possible because we learn so much about people when we visit them in their own space. And we take the time to see who they are in their own home. Elder Ashton continues, what kind of heart should we seek? For what kind of heart should we pray? What a lovely thought that we could pray for the kind of heart that we think is right. And then later, honest-hearted persons are individuals without pretense, without hypocrisy. They see things as they really are, right? They're not going to distort the truth. They're not going to judge incorrectly. They are reliable in word and action. They have no hidden agendas to deceive others or misrepresent facts. In contrast, those with conniving hearts will deceive and misrepresent. An honest heart will lead to a change of heart. Spiritually speaking, a change of heart is not only desirable, but essential for eternal life. The Book of Mormon describes the conversion experience, which all of us must have, as a mighty change in us or in our hearts, that we have no more disposition to do evil but good continually. Mosiah 5.2 The Book of Mormon is a study of interesting contrasts between those who hardened their hearts and those whose hearts were softened by the Spirit of the Lord. That's just what we've been talking about here. How does one have his or her heart softened under the influence of the Holy Ghost? Nephi's testimony provides an answer. Having great desires to know of the mysteries of God, wherefore I did cry unto the Lord. And behold, he did soften my heart, that I did believe all the words which had been spoken by my father. 1 Nephi 2.16, right at the beginning. After obtaining a testimony of the gospel and the Lord's church, we should strive to become pure in heart. And that is where our focus has been always, right? In this podcast, to choose glory, to become pure, to be sanctified, to continue on this path of diligence so that God can sanctify us and make a Zion people of us so that we can bring the Savior again to the earth through our preparation Of course, this wonderful question of Alma's in chapter 5, if ye have experienced a change of heart and if ye have felt to sing the song of redeeming love, can ye feel so now? I add my witness to Elder Ashton's that the gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to change hearts, to help us become pure, to help us to be gentle, and honest, and kind, and loving, and to choose glory, to think celestial, to become sanctified, and to build Zion. And we need to invite our children on this path. I will be recording extra content on how to help our children have soft hearts, how to help them feel compassion and gentle. It's not an automatic thing in our world. There are so many things around them that push them the other way. So if you're interested, go to p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash choosing glory and subscribe for the extra content. I look forward to seeing you there. Brothers and sisters, we can do this. We are charged to do this and God will provide a way. Let's do it. Let's choose glory and build Zion. 
Thanks as ever to my husband, Chris Anderson, and Doug Larson of Point Digital. Take care. <laughs>